Um, today's reading is from 1 Corinthians 9, uh, verses 3 through 23. Hear the word of the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some, without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, that we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So, um, is pastor, or is pastor, is Paul saying uh, that pastors should be paid or not? <laughs> I think you know my answer, um, and maybe even you think that's why we started walking through 1 Corinthians in the first place. <clears throat> because pastors are sneaky, aren't we? Um, we couldn't get a real job, so we figured we'd be a pastor, work one day a week, and then still expect to get paid. Um, <clears throat> or at least that's the assumptions of many, and, and I get it. You know, as I was reading this passage Earlier this week, one of the first things that popped into my mind was the story of the pastor who made national news um, because he asked his congregation to raise enough money to buy him a private jet. And not just any private jet, but a replacement private jet, and not just any replacement, but like the Rolls, Rolls Royce of private jets, the Gulfstream 650 for the uh, low, low price of $65 million, 
you too could proclaim the gospel wherever private landing strips are located. And one thing we need to say right from the get-go when we start talking about pastors and money is whenever pastors make these kinds of ridiculous requests, we need to know that they're cut from a slightly different cloth called the Health, Wealth, and Prosperity Movement. At the core of this belief structure is that God really wants every Christian to be really wealthy and perfectly healthy. And if you're good enough, if you have faith enough, if you give to their church enough, then, then finally your, your promise, your bank account will overflow and you know cancer will run for the hills, making Jesus much more a genie in a bottle than our Savior who died on the cross. And it sounds appealing. It sounds attractive. And yet there couldn't be anything more different from who Jesus is, why he died, and what he's called us to. You know, honestly, whenever I hear of these stories making it to national news, my first reaction, if I can be brutally honest, is to get angry. <laughs> because oftentimes then they'll associate what this guy's doing with what I'm doing, pastoring. But everybody just thinks he's doing it a lot better than I am. <laughs> look, I mean, look at him. I mean, why, why can't you? Good point. Um, <clears throat> and after I get over myself and my own issues, um, my heart begins to break. Not because people associate what he's doing with me, but eventually they associate that kind of behavior with Jesus and his church. But the real problem amidst all of that, look, I, I know I'm no better than this guy. I have my own wrestlings with the abuse of power, money, and social capital just on a less of a scale. <laughs> and that's one of the reasons why I love serving at Christ Community with our various campuses and broader structures of accountability. But the real problem isn't even the abuse of power and money, as awful as those things may be. The root problem, when we dig deeper, in which the abuse of power and money always stems from, is a manipulated and twisted gospel. A manipulated and twisted gospel. And that's Paul's main point here. It's not whether pastors get paid or not. But it's when the gospel really impacts our lives, it should radically transform everything about who we are. Because of Jesus, we should be nothing like and just like everyone else. Because of Christ, let me say it again, we should be just like and nothing like everyone else. Ordinary, urban, modern Kansas Cityans, yes. But because of how outrageously good the fact is that what God done, has done in Christ for us, because it's so outrageously good, we'll sacrifice anything. We'll let him change any aspect of who we are so that others might see Jesus more clearly. You know, if you, were, if you remember when you were a kid, um, you got those sheets. Mine were called highlights that I used to get in the mail. And they'd have the two different pictures one that, and they would say, find, they looked exactly identical almost, and then they'd say, find 10 things that are different about these pictures, right? And at first blush, you don't see anything different, but the longer you look, it seems like all you can see are the differences. <laughs> and that's what Paul's saying the gospel should do to our lives when it breaks into our very rhythms of every day. You know, and this is the drum that Paul's been banging throughout 1 Corinthians, this letter he wrote to a little church which we've affectionately called a beautiful mess. <laughs> They're a lot like us. They're beautiful in Christ, and yet they've still got a lot of mess going on. Last week in Easter, we jumped ahead to 1 Corinthians 15 to remember that the resurrection means everything matters. But two weeks ago, 
in chapter 8, we were talking about how our personal freedoms take on new purpose in the gospel. And we're going to pick back up into that conversation where Paul started the conversation in chapter 8 talking about what we're supposed to do with meat sacrifice to idols. Now, if you're anything like me, that sounds really weird. That's not normal, you know, dinner table conversation. And yet, this was a relevant case study in the first century because religious life and public life were enmeshed. For example, you go to the supermarket and you look at your ground beef. There's a good chance it was, it was um, butchered and sacrificed to one of the gods, one of the idols, and then sold back to the community. And some Christians had no beef with the source of their food. Okay, sorry. I had to throw in a cheesy joke. It's a rainy day. Spicing up. You know, they had no issue with where their food came from. And so they could eat whatever meat was laid before them with a clean conscience and follow Jesus and be perfectly fine. And yet there was another group of Christians who said no. To eat that meat is like worshiping the idols and you're risking your very faith. And it was causing a church split. And Paul says, stepping into this argument, kind of sums up his answer this way. Look, meat is meat. And these idols, they've got no life in them. They're nothing. So if you want to eat the meat that's sacrificed to idols and you've got a clean conscience about it, you can do that freely and be following Jesus faithfully. And yet, if eating that meat causes any sort of obstacle to the work of the gospel within that church and within your mission in that community, don't do it. Don't do it. And when we move to chapter 9 this morning, the Apostle Paul is lifting up his life as an example to this broader principle, to that whatever we do with our personal freedoms, if it hinders the gospel, we should put a question mark beside it. If it hinders the work of the gospel within our church or in our mission in the community, we should... We should put a question mark beside it. And when you get to chapter 9, verse 23, he sums it up by saying, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. And for us as a church on mission here in downtown KC, for us that means we should be just like and nothing like everyone around us. We should be just like and nothing like everyone around us. And this tension, it's it's showcased in three really tangible ways in our passage. And that, we're going to walk through these in that We have our rights and yet are called to sacrifice. We have our preferences and yet are called to serve. And we want, oh man, we want instant gratification and yet are called to a lasting reward. So let's look at exhibit A. We have our rights and yet are called to sacrifice. And this is where this whole money and pastors and apostles thing comes to play. So we're going to step back for a second into the first century world where professors and teachers and philosophers would travel from city to city, sharing their insights, building their student base. And they would do so by supporting themselves. They would either stay in the guest quarters of a wealthy patron or maybe they would beg for food and at other times would even get a second job. And the Apostle Paul in our passage, he knows this little church in Corinth is in the habit of of actually supporting teachers in their midst, but they're not supporting the Apostle Paul. And so these first 14 verses, Paul gives an extremely passionate defense as to why he has every right in the world to be paid by this church. It's kind of awkward. And and I love the way Eugene Peterson, (laughs) in the message uh, paraphrase, captures Paul's tone here. I think it's brilliant. So let me read that for you. It's going to be on the screen, verses 3 through 7. Eugene paraphrases this way. I'm not shy in standing up to my critics. 
We who are on a missionary assignment for God have a right to decent accommodations. And we have a right to support for us and our families. You don't seem to have raised questions with the other apostles and our master's brothers and Peter in these matters. So why me? Is it just Barnabas and I who have to go it alone and pay our own way? Are soldiers self-employed? Are gardeners forbidden to eat vegetables from their own gardens? Don't milkmaids get to drink their fill from the pail? And, And as you read on, Paul keeps building his case. He then goes to Scripture, where in Deuteronomy, God speaks to the agricultural community in ancient Israel and says, hey, when you're treading out the grain um, using your ox, don't muzzle your ox. Let them eat some of the fruit of their labor, the grain that's around them while they're treading out the grain. And Paul says, okay, why does God say this in Deuteronomy? Is he saying that merely for the animal's benefit? Is God concerned about animals? I think yes. But the biggest element there, if how much more for animals, how much more us, right? And he's like, look, God's saying this for our benefit so that we see that when someone works, they should be able to partake in the fruit of their labor. And there's a wider principle of work there that we don't have time to get into this morning. But what Paul's saying is, look, I'm sowing spiritual seeds into this church and I'm watching them grow and I have every right to partake in some of the fruit and financial support. Then he doesn't stop there. He just keeps going. It gets awkwarder and awkwarder, you know, for me, even as I'm preaching this. And he keeps going, and he starts leaning into now the temple practices in the first century, how the priests, when they would come and bring the sacrifice to the altar, they would eat part of the sacrifice as their payment, as their sustenance in their work. And then just to kind of add on there in verse 14, he says, oh yeah, and Jesus says, this is my right. (laughs) The Lord says those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. So after all of this, hammering over and over and over again his right to get paid, we expect the natural conclusion for the Apostle Paul to be, so show me the money, right? But instead, he does a 180. And with just as big of a passionate plea, he refuses to take advantage of his right to get paid. Look with me at verse 12 again. He says, If others share this rightful claim on you, if you're paying other teachers, don't we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Later on, Paul even says, look, I would rather die than receive your money. Why? Because in other letters, Paul thanks churches for their support. He even asks and kind of urges churches for their support. If you get to 2 Corinthians, he even later on in their relationship asks them for money. But why not now? And it all comes down to the gospel. It all comes down to the gospel as an official messenger sent by the resurrected Jesus to proclaim what God has done and is doing through Jesus and his church, he feels the relationship with this little church that he planted, that he's now apart from, is a bit rocky. And he doesn't want the slightest bit of question as to his motive as to why he's proclaiming the gospel. So he gives up his right, that he's proven is a right. He gives up his right to be paid. You know, as 21st century Americans... We have our rights, we love our rights, we fight for our rights, and we even see that as a right. And we may not be apostles, but each and every one of us is called and sent. 
And there may be a time where we're called to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel, even our rights, if that means that the gospel advances in the lives of those who are around us. And what Paul is showing us in our example should lead us to a question each and every one of us asks of ourselves. What am I giving up? What am I giving up? Has there been a point in my life where I've come to a crossroads and I've been called to sacrifice so as to remove any obstacle from the gospel's advancement? What am I giving up? Is my calendar populated differently? Is my budget constructed differently? Is my, are the relationships I have, are they engaged differently? And I, I want to wade in this last one of relationships for just a moment. I was reading uh, Tim Keller's book, Center Church, and I think he makes a keen observation for us as Western Christians, and especially urban Christians, when he highlights we really struggle with relational integrity. We really struggle with relational integrity, and this is how, you know, we hear this call that we're to be just like and nothing like everyone else, but oftentimes one of our greatest desires is just to blend in, just to blend in, and we can be so concerned in our various spheres of influence with losing influence, with being ostracized from social gatherings, with being penalized professionally, with being persecuted in kind of behind-the-scenes ways, whenever we identify ourselves publicly as Christians, that we remain silent. We remain silent. Look, I'm not saying that every conversation Jesus needs to make his way in the special appearance, okay? But if Jesus is at the center of who we are, if he's at the center of our identity, and yet he never shows up in our conversations, why? Why? Why is it when our colleagues ask us what we have going on on the weekends and we never mention a church gathering? Why is it in our conversations with family and friends on how we're doing, we never mention how God is shaping us and growing us? We may mention a struggle, but we never mention how God or Christ is the one engaged in shaping us in those struggles. Why is that? And oftentimes, I think it's because out of fear... We hold on rather than give up. Instead of sacrificing our anonymity or even our privacy, we hold on to that part in order to secure not being ostracized, not being persecuted, not being um, pushed out. And so we steal opportunities for God to be glorified in our relationships, for God to be known. And actually, we steal opportunities for people to authentically know us. Because if Jesus really is at the center of who we are and we never talk about Jesus, people will never really get to know us. Yeah? And we really rob friendship from going deeper. From going deeper. So what is this good news worth to you? What are you willing to sacrifice for its advancement? Your anonymity? Your privacy in those conversations? What are you giving up so that others might know the gospel? On to exhibit B. We come with our preferences and yet are called to serve. We come with our preferences and yet are called to serve. Instant, you know, what's interesting is that even though Paul forgoes his right to be supported by this church, and in one sense isn't obligated to this Corinthian church at all, his preferences don't rule him. And when we get down to verse 19, this is what Paul says. 
For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. You know, Paul gives us, I think, a glimpse into the paradox of the Christian faith here. When Jesus breaks into our broken lives, he frees us from all bondage. And yet he calls us simultaneously to voluntarily use that freedom to become a bondservant of all. You know, in the 16th century, the great reformer of the faith, Martin Luther, he wrote a treatise called The Freedom of the Christian. And in it, he summarizes this paradox this way. A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. And we sit in this paradox, being free from all and yet called to be a servant of all. And what this means for Paul is that he's aware and intentionally engaged in the preferences of the people that God's brought into his life that come from all kinds of walks of life. And as he interacts with people who don't yet follow Jesus, we could find Paul being nothing like and just like everyone around him. So for example, you come here as he begins to detail this out in verse 20. When he's engaging with the Jewish person, Paul himself is ethnically Jewish. He knows about circumcision. He knows about the kosher food laws, the holy days. And yet because of Jesus, he knows these are not essential. They're not important for salvation. You can be saved and not observe these holy days. You, you can be saved and not be circumcised. You can be saved. I mean, over and over again, he says this in Galatians and throughout his various letters. They're not important for salvation, and yet he knows they're important to the Jewish person, so he respects them. There are times he even engages in them for the sake of showing respect and cultural difference and even cultural sameness. As he goes to the one who's under the law, which is his way of saying the religious... He comes not as one under the law, he says in the text, which means he doesn't find his identity in trying to keep all of the commands. Instead, he comes with a completely different motivation. From the outside, his life might look very similar, morally in its ethic. But where it's really different is in the deep-seated realities of his motivations. He doesn't work now as those under the law looking for acceptance, driven by guilt and fear that maybe God will accept me if I'm good enough. Instead, although his life on the surface may look the same, he works from acceptance. Because of what Jesus has done, he's driven by gratitude. And so he's just like and yet nothing like everyone else. When he comes to those who are outside the law, Paul could relate. He could have a hot dog with them, you know, and have a conversation and not be underneath the ceremonial law over and over again. He points to those who are the Judaizers, he says in other letters, who say you have to keep these laws to be saved. And Paul says, no, 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 no. I can come to those outside the law, and yet he's never a lawless person. Instead, he says, I come now as one under the law of Christ, which is the law of love. And to elaborate that, What this law of Christ is, I want to point us actually to a little letter he writes to a little church in Galatia. And if you look in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, he says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In chapter 5, verse 14, he says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so he can come to those who are outside the law, those who do not embrace the ceremonial laws of ancient Israel, 
And he can relate. He can put his personal preferences as being someone who's ethnically Jewish aside because of the law of Christ, the law of love. And this is why it's so beautiful. It kind of climaxes here as he engages the weak, he calls them. And we've talked about them in weeks past. <laughs> Week, weeks. Um, <clears throat> it's terrible. But when he's engaging the weak, the law of Christ, this law of love, calls him now to enter the pain, the frustrations, the questions, the uncertainty that the weak may have. And he can enter there. He can relate with them. And yet he also comes with the unshakable hope of salvation in Jesus alone and what God has done in Christ. He's just like and yet nothing like everyone else. No matter where Paul was, even though he had his preferences, preferences, he heard his call to serve such that he could become all things to all men, right? That's what he says. In order that what? His aim, his goal, his purpose was to win some that the gospel might advance in the lives of those that God had placed around him. And he can't even help himself. You get to 1 Corinthians 9, 16, and he says, Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Like, woe to me. I'm cursed. This is, this is so crush, crucial to who I am. Look, just like everyone else, I love my preferences, and I'm sure you do too, but we've got to love others more than our preferences. We come with our preferences, but we're called to serve. And if as followers of Jesus, we are under the law of Christ as Paul was and calls us to be, then we should be asking ourselves, am I loving people well? Am I loving people well? And I think to love people well, we need to be like them, unlike them, and engaged in their lives. We need to be like them, unlike them, engaged in their lives. And look, I know none of us has time for that. Ain't nobody got time for that, right? Um, we, we barely got enough time to have coffee in the morning. We, we slurp that down before we run out the door. So how do we do this? How do we love people well in a busy world where we're already fighting for margin? Um, well, first, loving people well means that we are just like our neighbors in many ways. At first glance, we should be reassuringly similar to the people in our neighborhood, approachable. So if they were to come into the downtown campus, you know, on a Sunday morning and see everybody wearing togas, <laughs> that'd freak them out, right? That'd freak me out. I'd be like, oh, I don't belong here. Um, and yet there are certain aspects of our lives. Look, in the obvious, it's easy to see, but there are certain aspects of our lives that fit into that same category that aren't as obvious, that are keeping our neighbors at arm's length. Where instead, we are called to be just like our neighbors in many regards that they can relate with us, approach us. We can look like the rest of the residents of Kansas City. But in other key ways, we're nothing like the rest of those who are around us. How so? When it comes to our resources, Christians should be known as the most radical in their generosity of their time, talent, and treasure. When wronged against, people should say, you know, Christians, it doesn't matter what you do to them. I mean, they're ready to forgive you. (laughs) Why? Because we know what God in Christ has forgiven us of, that we just come willing and ready to forgive. When it comes to being in community, 
We're the ones who seek out the stranger and the outcast first because we know while we were enemies with God, that's when he died for us. And not only that, he adopted us and brought us into his family where God is our father and Jesus is our eldest brother, our Lord and our savior. In relationships, we set the bar for chastity. When it comes to being in the city, Christians should be the most resilient to stand up against injustice and for justice. We should be just like and nothing like everyone else. And I think a good case study for that is like Kelly prayed for us this morning. As we think about the issues going on in South Carolina that continue to plague our nation. In one sense, we should be just like the rest of our nation when that hit our Facebook page or hit the news heartbroken and even outraged at what still continues to happen with racism in our culture. And yet we should be nothing like in that we should be some of the people who are most ready to listen to both the perpetrator and the victim. We come not just wanting justice and yes, fighting for justice and hating injustice, but also coming with a lens of what does forgiveness look like? What does reconciliation look like between the oppressor and the oppressed? How do we come around the victims of the family? Even knowing across our nation, people have different experiences with the police. And how do we listen? How do we engage instead of just shouting at each other? The church should be one of the safe places for the truth to really resound and have honest conversation. How are we like and unlike everyone else? How can we listen And all of that will be for naught, how we're unlike or how we're like, if we're not engaged in non-superficial, genuine relationships with the people that God's brought around us. If we're not having the conversations in genuine friendship, congratulations, we've done a whole lot of nothing. We need those relationships to engage. But how do we, once again, how do we do this when everybody's crazy busy. And I, I want to highlight just a couple practical ways in which we can engage relationships so those areas of like and unlike become more meaningful on mission for a church, okay? There's a couple practical ways um, and handles to help us do this and leverage what we're already doing rather than really having to start something new, okay? First, with our neighbors, one of the best things you can do to go deeper in engagement is to keep a regular schedule, Do things regularly so that you can build on relationships. So when you go to the grocery, when you get your hair cut, when you go do your laundry, if you're a loft dweller and you're doing the laundromat or the local uh, quarters uh, for the laundromat, um, do it regularly the same day of the week, maybe even the same time of the day so that you have a higher chance of bumping into the same people. You're already doing these things, but leverage them and do them regularly so you can grow in the depths of your relationships with those Folks, they get to know you. You get to know them. Hey, it's Thursday. I know Gabe's going to be down there washing his socks and he's going to lose three of them and he's going to be frustrated. Like what, you know, what are those things you can start to do regularly? If you have an interest or hobby, don't start something new first. Ask the question, what's going on in my community? You know, is there something I can join in with others? So for example, I like soccer. I haven't had the opportunity to engage in it as much since I've been working on uh, my new house and I have a second child on the way, but I love soccer and on Liberty Memorial, there's a group of folks that play soccer every Tuesday night and I used to go down there and I'd play on Tuesday nights and I'd try to come early and stay late to help out to get to know people and they'd get to know me. 
joining in what others are already doing. And if you do have a need and you don't see the communities engaging it, then start something and invite the whole community into it. Don't make it another Christian clique. But say, you know, Kenny and Martha have done this. Some of you know Pastor Kenny. Um, and they live right here over in one of these lofts. Um, they had this bunny. <laughs> and they're going away on vacation. And they thought, you know what? There's bound to be other people in our loft who have pets and nobody's got the chance to watch them. So they started this group for their building of watching each other's pets. It's not a bunch of Christians watching each other's Christian pets, whatever that is. But it's, you know, it, it's people sharing life together, living in proximity and saying, will you watch my, watch my bunny? And then you, which sounds weird. I mean, who has bunnies and who's watching bunnies? But, you know, it's, but they're sharing the responsibility, getting to know their neighbors, seeing a need and meeting it, reaching out to the community association, like the Crossroads Community Association. Is there a way that what I'm doing might actually benefit our broader community? You're seeing the needs and you're engaging and you're inviting the whole community, not just your Christian community, into it. When it comes to our colleagues at work, one of the best ways that you can grow in the deep and deepening your relationships there is to be the convener of activities. At the end of the workday, and I know some of you are really well, good at this, is at the end of the workday, say, hey, you want to go grab happy hour for 30 minutes? Grab two or three people, you know, invite them over to your home for a meal or a movie night. You find out some of your colleagues um, enjoy the same topic or a similar book, start a book study. Um, you know, on the latest novel, uh, you know, the latest Harry Potter, whatever, you know, whatever it is, and meet once a month and talk about it and get to know each other. Um, leveraging those interests and hobbies that God has given you, the things you're already doing to go deeper in relationship. But whatever you do, whatever that looks like, one thing it should look like is that your faith should not only inform but be integrated into those conversations. Once again, if Jesus is at the center of your life, there's going to come a point when you have a friendship that it's just going to bubble out of you. I mean, if Jesus really is changing and shaping every aspect of your life, not just Sunday morning, there's going to come a point where, you know, Gabe, why are you doing that? Well, honestly, because Jesus is kind of rocking my world on this issue right now, and he's just been challenging me, so I'm just trying to live into that. It's as simple as that, an everyday conversation, making your walk of faith a normal part of your friendship, a normal part of your friendship. Loving people well, it means serving them where they're at. And to do that, to be approachable, to be also a challenge in that presence, and to be engaged, we need to be like, unlike, and engaged in those relationships. Are we loving people well? Are you loving people well? And that leads us to our last point this morning. We want instant gratification and yet are called to a lasting reward. We live in a world that's really fast-paced and it promises these outlandish, you know, results. Lose seven pounds in seven days with this new miracle drug. Whoop, you know, um, or find your perfect soulmate by just taking a five-minute survey. Really? Um, and if, if we can have anything we want and we can have it now, we actually want it yesterday. <laughs> It's kind of the rhythm at least I experience in my own life. And, and to be clear, there's nothing wrong with the one and done inherently of instant gratification. I like email. My parents love to be able to see their granddaughter at any point in the day through FaceTime. And yet, when we come to the promises of the gospel, it promises a reward that meets us today and continues to blossom into eternity. That's the reward we're promised. 
And for Paul, his reward, the thing that he'll give up his rights for, the thing he'll become a servant to all for, the, the place he finds his identity, his ground for boasting, he says, is the gospel. Such that whenever the resurrected Jesus interrupted Paul's road trip to Damascus to go in prison, some other Christians, and said, hey, Paul, join me, at that time formerly known as Saul, join me in proclaiming that I am alive, Paul's never been the same. And he's been consumed by this proclamation of the gospel and his reward, it comes to a climax in chapter 9, verse 23, where he says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, everything, I do it all when, I, when I'm meeting with my neighbors, when I'm going through shipwrecks, when I'm getting beaten, when I'm feeling depressed, when I'm feeling like I need to, to, to get some more food, when I'm, when I'm just going about my normal day. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings, its reward. You see, the gospel comes offering a lasting reward because our God, he sent his one and only son And he became human. He entered our mess, our brokenness. And then in the midst of our failures, our sin, the repercussions of our failures and sin that was to lead to an eternity apart from God, Jesus took our penalty upon himself and died in our place and defeated sin. And then in his resurrection has proved that he has defeated death and offers now eternal life to all who embrace him. And what's the greatest reward of the gospel is that through this good news, we now have the opportunity to be known by God and get to know God for eternity. That's the true reward of the gospel is God himself forever. The one in whom our hearts are restless until they find their home. And when I go through difficult stints, and the pastoral vocation, you know, having to preach on sexuality for three weeks in a row. Um, Whatever it is, what keeps me waking up in the morning, what keeps me going isn't the direct deposit, friends, okay? What keeps me going, what, what wakes me up in the morning is seeing the power of the, of the life-giving reality, the gospel, the triune God himself break into our broken lives, and begin to reform us into all we were designed to be and showing himself to be gloriously all we've ever needed. Whether it's the original conversion of death to life and seeing Jesus as the true son of God, the source of our salvation, whether it's the person who says, I love Jesus, but I hate his church, I hate his body, I hate his bride. And as the gospel breaks in even deeper, they come to see the church as the the cauldron of the reformation of their faith. And they see how God is working through his people as his hands and feet. And you can't hate Jesus' bride with also also uh, hating the bridegroom, Jesus. Or it's those who see Jesus just as their savior, but never as their Lord. Like, I can trust in him, but I don't have to trust him with my life. And yet they come to see that Jesus is trustworthy in all things and they grow in their relationship with Christ. And all of that, that's what keeps me going. Um, Man, I wasn't even close to the mic. Um, And look, that's not just true of people who are paid to be good, like pastors. (laughs) That's true of all of us. As the body of Christ, we share in that reward. We share in that reward. We call the same Jesus our Christ, 
By the power of the Spirit, God is sending each and every one of us on purpose to now resemble that gospel and to be just like and nothing like everyone around us. Regardless of where God's placed you, we have our rights and yet are called to sacrifice. We come with our preferences and yet are called to serve. We, we want instant gratification and yet are called to a lasting reward. And what a reward it is, right? You know, as the old hymn says, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. What are you giving up? so that the lost have no obstacle to be found. Are you loving people well and showing them and letting them see what you've already seen, our great reward, a glorious and gracious God of the gospel? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that you have sent men and women like the Apostle Paul, to exemplify what it means now to follow Jesus, where our ultimate aim is the gospel and its advancement because we love our neighbors and we want them to know the best thing in the world that's ever happened to the world for them. God, may we be the kinds of folks who are aware of our rights but are willing to sacrifice them. The kinds of folks who are aware of our own preferences but see our goal more to serve. The kinds of folks who know and enjoy instant gratification but ultimately realize we're called to a lasting reward. May we be the kinds of folks in this city, on mission, stewarding our personal freedoms such that we're just like and nothing like everyone else so that the gospel is advanced. May it be true of us. And if there's anyone here this morning, God, that has yet to embrace this good news, has yet to make Jesus their Lord and Savior, has yet to begin to follow him and know the the joy that you call us to, I pray by the power of your spirit you would convict of sin and point them to the way of everlasting life. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, before Jesus went to the cross... He gave his disciples a meal. A meal that reminds us that a God who is so unlike us became so much like us. A God who had every right to write us off and yet became our very sacrifice. And it's this good news, this gospel we proclaim to our senses of taste, of touch, and smell. Through broken bread, we remember his body broken for us. Through common poor juice, we remember his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. If you're new here, let me walk you through how we partake in the Lord's Supper together. The Lord's table is open to all who are the Lord's, those whom have proclaimed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. If you've yet to do that, we ask that you would refrain from the table. We're really glad you're